So let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this time in your word. We're grateful for St. Peter's uh, wisdom, the concise and direct teaching that he offers us. We'd ask that you'd help us untangle the things that we get confused by and be blessed by it all. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Um, we're going through First and Second Peter in five weeks, and that means that different chunks or lengths of chunks, like tonight's goes a little bit to the other side of the sheet, second week it goes to almost bo full both sides, but it's one thought. I, I broke it out in terms of the natural thought places, so it'll be three weeks on First Peter, two weeks on Second Peter, because it's a shorter book. Um, neither one is very long. Uh, the uh, Background-wise, we don't know when it was written. Uh, we uh, suspect in the early 60s AD. Uh, he is, uh, Peter is supposed to have died around 66, 67 um, uh, in the persecution of Nero, but um, uh, we, don't, we don't really know. There's nothing in the book that would give us a reason to date it at a certain point. We don't know where it was written from. Tradition has it written from Rome because at the end of the first book um, it mentions she who is at Babylon greets you and they think Babylon was cipher nickname for religious people's view of Rome. But there was also a city called uh, Babylon in Egypt and it was rumored that Peter was in Egypt at one point. Um, all these just legends. And there's also uh, an element of thinking of Jerusalem as Babylon and that Peter may have just been in Jerusalem uh, writing it. Um, it is, uh, you have a map there at the top and the people it is written to, uh, if you look at the first, uh, the first verse, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And there on the top of Asia Minor, there's Greece off to the left. Um, this is all now Turkey, but you have Cappadocia right above, uh, you can spot it, big black type. Uh, and you notice it's sort of the top tier of Asia Minor, leaving out Cilicia and Lycia um, in the south, either because of trade routes or because of, you know, where um, he is sending this book by the hand of Silas, the famous Paul and Silas guy. Um, uh, called Sylvanus in this book, but it may have been that this was just sort of the trajectory of a of a trip that the trade road, the Roman roads would take him through that top tier uh, from Cappadocia to uh, to Asia. It doesn't seem like it's in order unless it's a roundabout way. Because it's Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Um, we also know that. Uh, these Christians, the exiles of the dispersion, usually the dispersion was referring to Jewish people because of their dispersion after, um, especially the destruction of, of Jerusalem, but the Christians who were dispersed after the, the persecution of Stephen um, may have been uh, who he was dressing. It seems from the content of the book that it wasn't Jews he was writing to, <coughs> but you, you can gauge that as we go. Um, we do know later on, early 2nd century, uh, from Pontus um, up there uh, in, in Bithynia, uh, we have letters from the Roman governor to the emperor Trajan, uh, discussing what to do about all the Christians, how to question them, how to try them, how to punish them. Um, and we have one of our earliest descriptions of Christian worship uh, and how nice they were from these, this Roman governor writing to the emperor and the emperor writing back. And the letters are you know, easily accessible. You can find them anywhere in a used bookstore um, called Letters of Pliny the Younger. But it gives you evidence that these Christians had some longevity to their churches, whatever you might think of, of how quickly the church went bad uh, in various parts of the world. It seems that 
the Christians in this region were uh, doing fine. Now, um, there's going to be there's some of the things that are in uh, largely, give you a, a heads up, largely Peter is about church dealing with uh, coming suffering or coming persecution and um, being a teaching and an encouragement regarding that sort of world situation. Um, the neuronic persecution really wasn't, did not hit them. So even though it kills Peter, uh, it really stays in Rome. Uh, it was later persecutions like under uh, Domitian or uh, uh, those that, that become empire-wide. Um, so bear in mind that he's, he's, he's directing this towards a whole region, so it's not a particular church with a particular problem, but it's a particular range of churches that are going to face, they're going to face a particular problem. It says, to these exiles, verse 2, chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What jumps out to me is the Trinitarian inclusion there. There's God the Father, the Spirit, Jesus Christ. And what you have happening in this, which he fills out in the second, the second paragraph, a kind of a thematic, a thematic statement. It just sounds like, well, that's good Christian stuff right there. Chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified for obedience and sprinkling with us. It all sounds religious, like it's part of our religion. But he, since he expands on this as we go into the chapter, um, we, we want to notice that there's this trickle down um, you might say through the Godhead, if you want to refer to God as the Godhead. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. i just tell you at the outset, um, yes, I believe the, tri the word Trinity is a good way of describing th something we have a hard time comprehending, but there's only one God. Okay, so when you go Godhead, you start thinking committee. And um, I don't think we're serving a committee. Um, but within the Godhead, if you can work that way, the Father, God the Father, has a, um, the role he has, having chosen you and destined you, the, these, these exiles, chosen and destined them. Um, the word destined is actually a, uh, the word foreknown. Um, so, um, um, and chosen is elect. The elect and foreknown are and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit. Notice that there's this, there is this taking the Christians at a certain place. Now, whatever your views about election and predestination notwithstanding, God has taken you. Whatever your view, if you believe in freedom of the will, still God has taken you. God has has uh, planned something. Uh, reached down and touched your life in a way um, that has certain purposes. That is, that you'd be sanctified by the Spirit. That means set apart by the Spirit. That means a, a change has happened in you. A metaphysical change. You weren't just made the team. You weren't just picked to go on the roster. You weren't just, okay, you stand over here and sit over there. You're red, you're blue, your shirts are your skins. Um, there is a, an effect of God on your life of sanctification, means being set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And what you, you, you have the full, the, you might say the fullness of the gospel in a short, tidy sentence that, of course, theologians could argue about for you know, decades. Uh, about every portion of it, but if you step away from the argument that's available to you and look at, he's talking to Christians who've never heard of these arguments. These arguments are going to spring up for centuries. These are just people who have been chosen and destined or elect and, and foreknown, um, set apart, and they understand that this religion, the God of the Christians, has done something to bring about, to bring about your obedience and your forgiveness. That's what the sprinkling with his blood 
has to do with. It's in an image out of the temple worship where the priest would dip blood in the branch of hyssop and sprinkle it on the standing around worshippers. So you're getting splattered with blood like it was a Quentin Tarantino film. But uh, uh, it's a very, a very grim practice, but that's how he's referring to the blood of Christ. It's a sprinkled blood that atones for sin. So you get, you get a change, like everything in the Christian life. We are not now gods, we're chosen. We are uh, metaphysically shifted by the Spirit, and we have a purpose, to be obedient and to be forgiven. Now in that trickle-down through the Godhead, in that plan that God himself uses all of his uh, places where he touches man, to uh, to certain to certain a certain end, he then semicolon says, "May grace and peace be multiplied to you." That's the suggestion um, that God, in His effort, which is encompasses all that we would call Christianity at its most basic basic place, um, has this suggestion out the other end, that you would be the recipient of grace and peace in a multiplied or a increased amount. Suggesting, not just, uh, I don't know if multiplication is an exponential, but it's, it's not just addition. It's, you're multiplying um, uh, more and more of these things in your life. This is not something that you're just picking up at one point, you come into the faith, you get the grace and the, and the card, and, and you're a member now. Um, it suggests that you get more and more of this grace and more and more of this peace. Now, he immediately, after that little introduction, and you could have treated that just as a, you know, dear so-and-so. Have you ever looked at a letter? And it, I, Some people I, I write, and I don't want to put dear, because I'm, I'm honest, they're not. Dear so-and-so, you're not. It's like signing off, you're most obedient. Uh, no, I'm not. Um, you at least want honesty in your politenesses. And if nothing else, even if this were just, oh yeah, all letters in antiquity had to have some verbiage filling up the hello at the beginning. But he's going to fill it up with true things. These are all obviously true Christian um, uh, concepts that everyone in Christ has encountered. All of these exiles in the dispersion, all of these Christians were chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. We want them to be graceful and peaceful people. And if those things didn't happen, recommending the grace and peace mm, not gonna, it's not going to get traction. If those things didn't happen, the suggestion would follow on that. When he gets down to business in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes back into that relationship, God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. By his, and he's talking about the Father here, blessed be God the Father of our Lord. By his, God the Father, by his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are guarded through faith for salvation, for us salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, it's like he took that first reading and went, okay, let's stretch that out. Let's add a few more words in there. Let's actually react to it. And it's so hard in a Christian culture of centuries where Christianity peeks at us through holidays, weekly observances, comfortable freedoms that allow us to do this freely without fear of anything. We, we have gotten pretty comfortable in how we see that great gospel. For Peter, now he's been in it for a few decades anyway, uh, at this point, for him is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ 
I don't think there are exclamation points in Greek, but we got one in English. Because that's what, if you were to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is what you mean, and it's preceding this um, rather, it's a, um, it's not hyperbole, because you can't get that hyperbolic about this, but what he is saying, his great mercy, we have been born again. We have been born anew. Now this is a slightly different born again in the language. The one in 1 John 3 is uh, born from above. This is born again. This is the, um, we often think the one in John 3, it says born again in English, but it means born from above. Uh, they're talking about the same experience, but I, um, I just thought I'd better point that out. But this is letting you know the nature of his, you might say, his choosing and his destining of us. By his great mercy. It's his action. Any, any Christian worth their salt knows perfectly well that nobody saves themselves by uh, adopting Christianity. I signed up and I'm saved. It's God's great mercy. He has made this destiny for us. He is the one that rebirthed us. But look, as it, 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 you're, what you're going to find out here is the weight that sits in God of the thing we... This is why we praise God for this. The weight of what sits in God. His mercy, he, he bore you as... It, it, gave birth to you, or made you be born. To a living hope, also he is the hope. To an inheritance, which he provides, which is imperishable and which we cannot make it imperishable. We did not make either the inheritance or its, or its uh, futility. It, it, it has an unchanging, unfading, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. All these are in God's hands. Who, you, they are all for us in God. They have all been done to us in God. Um, and when he finally gets to you at the end of the verse 4, who, by God's power, are guarded, some translations say protected, guarded through faith. You finally get to be a participant in this to one degree or another. You finally are functioning in this relationship with God, Peter seems to think that the big functions are God's. We are standing around believing it. We are guarding our life in him by our belief in him and how sincerely we maintain that. Now remember, this is a book written to Christians that are about to or have encountered some pushback on their Christianity. We are kept for this salvation that's going to be revealed. Now, it's not salvation. You've already been born again, right? You, we have been born anew to a living hope of a future salvation. So we're saved in the sense that we all think of it. We have our salvation of being born again. And we are also, by our encouragement of our faith, by God guarding us through his power, but regarding our faith, for the salvation that's coming to us. In this you rejoice. So already in this we praise him. You know, in this we, you can't say good enough things about it. And you're facing something, but in spite of that, this is a, a, a quality that is going to overcome what is the second part of verse 6. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we're what we're facing up to is what our doctrine is: God has provided a great salvation. 
You can draw out the, the mechanism however you want, but God has provided a great salvation. His Holy Spirit has worked this sanctifying thing in you. It was to the purposes that Christ laid out. Obedience to the Son as Lord. Forgiveness of sins. Um, and, but what's, you know, talking about that, we can sing about that, we can get the hymn books out and find some hymns about the greatness of God, and sing those, and those, that would be well and good. But instruction-wise, you can't be instructed to do anything about what God has done. You can understand what God has done, you can study what God has done, but doing something about it, you're not doing anything about it other than praise. You're going to glory in him, you're going to honor him. But it's the genuineness of your faith that you're experiencing. You, where you are regarding your faith. Because you're guarded by your faith unto that salvation in the last time. But we rejoice in this even though things are going south on us. Because we're going to suffer. And you can't imagine the, the degree of suffering. Uh, I, I, I don't recommend things like Fox's Book of Bar Martyrs. No, I just don't trust it. I, it's just a bit of a, you know, hagiography of all these great saints dying horrific, horrific deaths. No, probably many of them are true, but I can't be sure which ones. Uh, but there are all sorts of sources where you hear about um, how Christians died in various circumstances. And you can't imagine you know, the comfort of the middle-class American life would be manifestly altered if by doing this we wondered if by the end of the evening some of us would have a stone tied around our neck and tossed into the creek. Because that's what would happen. Or they would burn them. Or they'd just torture them for a while to see them get them to deny Jesus Christ. It's happening in other parts of the world. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around, but he's writing to someone to whom it's going and has presented itself. They, they seem to be conscious of this. You may have to suffer various trials. But like gold, the thing it's doing is purifying the gold of your faith. Which is, and it's more precious than gold, So that the things of the you, know, the, you might say, the, the power of faithful believers will really be the thing expressed, the redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is another way of saying revealed in the last time at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When that is, what that's referring to, that's up to you to figure out on your chart, if you make a chart. But... Our faith guards us and is tested through to that time. And at that time, as St. Paul said when he was facing death, 2 Timothy, he said, I've run the race, I've fought the fight. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He was looking toward his death, and he knew it was coming, and the genuineness of his faith, what he had suffered, how many beatings he had received, what he had, how many imprisonments he'd been under, it all redounded to praise, glory, and honor. Now, I want you to see the things that are being created in us when we have the right view of what's going on with us. Now, we got the wrong view, too, but, but a right, you might say, recognition of the power of God in the gospel. What did it, what did it do to you? Two, what is the value of your faith and what does it face when you um, go through life? And how is what it faces and how you, remember this is the one part that you, um, that you have some control over. What's your faith doing? The world is controlling whether it does bad things to you and you're controlling as what you, how your faith is growing. Now, I have a verse over on the side here um, responding to the through faith issue. 
because however you de design the mechanism of God doing these things to you, the your part of the mechanism, your trigger to it through faith, and it's the thing who, which whose genuineness is at question here because your belonging to Christ is resting in that, the ground of your faith. It says in first in Gospel of John 1.12, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So the being born again, also John 3, that being born again, God so loved the world, they gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The belief, the faith, is the, this trigger of this great thing that God has done. You have the duty of protecting what you're supposed to be protecting in you in the face of suffering so that you will know. You're, you're, you will know that the benefits that came down to you from God really did, that they have the right kind of result in you, and it redounds to praise, glory, and honor. So I'm getting his praise. I'm getting rejoicing in this situation. And this is verse 8. Without having seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. As the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls. So you begin to realize that this thing of your faith, you want to be conscious of what it has shaped itself to be. We should spend more time arguing, you might say, the mechanisms of our faith or the nature of belief than we do about whether God determines you or you freely, you know, get, you know, God will do what God does. God will do what God does. And it's a wonderful thing. But our response, without having seen him, we love him, when it says in, uh, in John 20, here on the side, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Belief starts to pick genuine value up from the tension of its circumstance. Suffering, right? Though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith. And then not seeing him? Another tension. Easy for me, you know, you don't want to think too much about perception. I've been doing some reading on the nature of perception. Lewis writes a little bit about it, and I've been reading something on mystics about about the nature of uh, perception. And it's a, uh, well, you don't want to go too far there because stuff starts to get a little weird. But for the most part, we're very comfortable walking through our house. We're very comfortable checking our bank account, even in the digital world of the, of the web. We, we believe everything implicitly that we see. It's an easy belief. People will say, I believe in what I can see and touch. So we know when we say, we can't see him. We know when we say, oh, you're going to be tortured for the next 12 days by the Romans. You either go, okay, really, really, honestly, do I really, honestly, believe this? For heaven's sake. For heaven's sake. Because the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls, I suppose something rests on it. If it comes out that your faith, once tested, is genuine. So you're going to want to view at most what you in, in counseling situations. What you deal with with hard times with Christians is doubt. You don't deal with faith. Usually you don't you, you, you have people saying, throwing up their hands and going, Oh where was God when I needed him? What was they? They they don't believe him. Now This is a uh, this is a sort of a big Bible idea, right? You've heard of faith. You've heard of you are saved by grace through faith, not of works. There is a um, 
you know this is doctrine, but life itself will offer you the cessation of that pain for denying him. It will offer you many things to look at that you can more easily believe in. You can have a life full of faith in things that do not stretch you at all. But do you know the background of this? This middle paragraph that I pulled out. The prophets, who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired about this salvation that you get through faith. And the grace that we've discussed that God is to be praised for, this great electing and, and foreknowing and destining you to be sanctified and obedient to Jesus Christ and forgiven, the, the long time before these guys, uh, hundreds of years before Peter, they inquired what person or time was indicated by the Spirit of Christ within them when predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. I like the fact that it says, the Spirit of Christ within them, predicting the sufferings of Christ. The Spirit of Christ was prophesying in the prophets about the Christ's own suffering that was going to come to him when he came, because he knew that's why he came. But hundreds of years earlier, the Spirit of Christ, God over centuries, was writing this great salvation. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things which have now been announced to you, by those who preach the good news to you, through the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There's a sense of the almost waxing a little, you know, poetic. Uh, and acts what I can't talk. I was trying to sing along, I think, with the... <laughs> um, the um, um, to try to put you in the mode of recognizing up against the unseen and up against the suffering. I have this, how do I know Jesus is right there for me? I don't see Jesus right there for me. Why couldn't he just show me a sign? Why couldn't he? Unseen. Where's your faith? Oh, when someone's going to hurt me. That's a bad thing, too. So what are you going to put on the other side? What's supposed to inspire you? Do you realize the story of which you are a part? You're now 2,000 years after Peter. And Peter was looking back, you know, if you look back to Isaiah, um, he's in the 700s B.C., so, 700 years before Peter, and Peter then goes, you know, Isaiah was looking at this going, wow, I wonder what kind of salvation is this, this is dealing with. They wanted to know about this grace, and they, all they could know was that it was for the people to whom it would come. It would be to their benefit, this great news, this great mystery, this great holiness, that uh, work of God in you, the work of God in man. Things that were not just chronologically important. You often see movies where, well, you get Lord of the Rings sort of things, where there's always some dark, mysterious, many centuries hidden rune carved at the side of a rock someplace just waiting for the time when the ring would be found, or whatever it is. You go, oh, that's so important. Anybody could write something down, Mayan calendars, I don't care what it is. They just discovered a new tomb of a physician in, in one of the valleys um, of tombs in Egypt. Thought they dug them all up, but they found a new one. Um, it's all very exciting to people because we, we feel this thread of just the loose story of humanity hung more closely together by knowing the people that lived before us. And this is something where the story is actually written. There is a narrative of heaven where the Spirit of Christ, speaking in Isaiah, tells Isaiah to talk about this, that that same Spirit will then indwell in a child in Bethlehem and live out a life and face those sufferings and die, so that the people after that fact, you, 2,000 years later, get to encounter this election in God. 
These are things angels wish they could know about. Now, I don't know to what degree angels don't know. Just, just say they're curious. They would, they would be intrigued by these hidden purposes of God. So do you understand, not just the greatness of the message, if we, if we had never heard of Jesus Christ, that there was no Christianity, and right in the middle of your week, you're just living out life, typical man, being bad, someone comes to you and said, I have heard of a God who will forgive you because his son died a long time ago, a long far away, and, they don't, and you may be hungry enough for forgiveness that you would really want to believe it, but you're, if it is believed, if you believe it, this is actually an aspect of your genuine faith, your actual belief in it should make you weak at the knees. Not because belief makes you weak at the knees, but what you're believing is such a... We were reading Lewis's uh, Near Christianity last night, and he talks about dismay when you finally realize what it is must necessarily be. There must be a God, and he must be holy, and you've been very bad. Suddenly you have, you're facing dismay. Faith about things, understanding about things, begins to click with this realization that if I'm saying what I'm saying, if the Bible is true, those Old Testament guys are not just those books I don't like to read as much, they are men to whom the narrative was illuminated a very slight bit so that it would be said 700 years before the Christ. You're part of that story. Therefore, because, because of this great thing, you're supposed to be redounding to praise, glory, and honor, and rejoicing with unutterable and exalted joy. I like that, unutterable. I prefer the word ineffable, but unutterable is fine. That means you just can't say it. There's no you. You would you would sound a little silly if you said it, tried to say it all the time. You felt it. Peter does a pretty bang up job here, but. You know that you can't speak in that kind of panegyric all the time. It just, it just starts to sound uh, silly. And there's a degree of silence that falls on you in this kind of joy. There's just this, there's this looking out your eyes at a world that your position in it was part of a, a huge story of God's purpose, and you are one of the purposes. You were... Chosen and destined, sanctified to the obedience and the sprinkling. That's for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in heaven. All these things are true for you. Therefore, since it, since it shut you up, since it shuts you up and you're in a state of joy and you've been... Grace and peace are being multiplied to you. You say, well, if I were added up all these things, the praise, the joy, the love, the grace, the peace, pretty soon you're a saint. You might you know, try that out. That's a, I recommend it. But therefore, gird up your minds. Now, what we face when we realize this huge thing that God has done. We had no part of those thousands of years of his narrative writing, his doing of deeds, his saving of souls. We're just one of the souls so saved. We are one of those few participants whose faith is now in question. Do you believe? Have you sought God? Do you love him? Without having seen him and being asked to suffer in his name, do you pull through? Now, What's interesting here, as I, I mentioned a minute ago, there is a, uh, um, a quality about suffering that rivets the mind, and there is a quality about not seeing that causes us to be less, uh, 
less willing to believe it. And uh, just thinking of Mark 4, on the parable of the sower, and when he interprets the parable of the sower, Jesus, to the disciples, he says, around 13, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word, which is sown in them. That really doesn't apply to the situation here. We've got people that are already believers. And, in, and these, in like manner, are the ones sown upon rocky ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Because what a great message. And, when they have, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The genuineness of your faith. Suffering brings on a question. Did you believe? Because belief is not a fair-weather friend. It's not, I, yes, I trust you implicitly. And then as soon as you hear that it's going to cost you something to trust your friend implicitly, you, you wonder. They fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the delight in riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who are sown upon the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. You have the three categories. You have the suffering, you have the seeing, or the unseeing, because that's that third group, the cares of this world, the things that I really have to deal with here. Trusting God is not so much of a question, but don't be so religious. I've got to be sure that I have enough insurance. I've got to be sure that I have um, uh, all the money things accounted for that I needed account to account for. The delight in riches and the desire for other things. We can much more easily believe in a... Both of those are neg once negative, tribulation, persecution, one's positive, success in this world. Because success in this world will give you something to look at, will give your senses to believe something to believe in. Pain will give you a reason not to believe it. And you'll notice that the third group, they hear it and accept it. They believe. And they bear fruit. <coughs> now that's, keeping that in mind, out of Mark 4, it's also in Matthew, We're talking about examining our part of this wonderful thing, the faith. Our life, God is constant. God is faithful. We're just going to affirm that because we're a Christian Bible study. Right? It's, we're not going to discuss the doubts some people may have. But we are not always faithful. <coughs> and trials distract us and successes distract us. So, what do I do? Therefore, because all that is true, God's wonderful salvation, and you're being tested in your faith, God's wonderful salvation that prophets and angels were just really curious about, but no, not you, because you needed to see. You needed to not be hurt. Gird up your minds, be sober. Set your hope fully upon the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sit up straight, put your shoulders back, put on your big girl panties, do whatever it is that you need to do to be sober about what you're dealing with. In the second part of Vogue, I didn't get as far into mere Christianity as I wanted to get, but he talks about atheism and liberalism as, as schools of thought for boys. They were so simple, they were so childish in their their claims, their efforts, they just weren't doing the heavy lifting. You're going to gird up your mind. That means I got some suspenders this year because my pants keep falling down when I do yard work and I, and it's that sort of thing. You're going to say, I'm going to do some things to make sure my pants don't fall down in front of the neighbors. 
Or you, or you make sure that your 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 zipper's up and your then your your hoodie's on, or you're out there with your snowblower and you want to be sure your Carhartts, you know, cover up every square inch of you. You gird everything up. You prepare yourself for this task. It's a sober thing, and you point yourself to the hope you have in Jesus Christ, the grace when Jesus Christ is revealed. Your hope, remember it says in uh, Romans 8, hope that is seen is not hope. So we have an unseen thing that we hope in that is going to be this facing the revelation which we will see. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Remember, God has done this to create obedience to Jesus Christ. As children who were raised well, who when mother said do X, I'm sure Chloe has some good some testimony here, of how quickly and, and immediately she jumps to the task that she was told to do. I'm sure we all did that when we were young. How quickly and immediately. As obedient children, we've seen them, sometimes we think they're just little apple polishers or prayers. <coughs> but we're supposed to be like that. We're supposed to set ourselves apart from the passions of ignorance. Now, it's one of my favorite passages. I love this passage. Because for me, it's like a... Um, uh, what are they called? Uh, mission statement. You know, about... Uh, our ministry and the like, minds girded up, sober, our hope fully set on the grace to be revealed and not conformed to the passions of ignorance. Because when you're ignorant, folks, this is a basic truth, you have to have passions to get you to move. Because when you're stupid, you can't come up with reasons. You don't actually craft an idea, it's, it's ignorance. So you have to get the energy to get you to do stuff out of your passions. You fall back on your urges, and your urges are met primarily by things that um, you enjoy. Money, uh, various desires of various desires, desires of life. But as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That was the concluding suggestion. You're about a life in which you are not promised success. In fact, success could hurt you. You're not promised freedom from pain. In fact, you will probably get some pain. So, we are talking about a relationship with a being for whom good and bad in this life are not part of your equation. You have to deal with them but they're not part of what you're processing. You are saying, I'm so driven by the greatness of this gift and my faith in it, my genuine faith in it, that I am going to take these opportunities to point myself to more holiness, to understand my faith, to understand what I'm believing. That's what you're girding up your minds to do. That's why it says in Romans 12 that you be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God. We have a task at hand because the remember the trickle-down of the triune God is his calling you out and sanctifying you was to obedience and forgiveness. That was the point. It wasn't to forgiveness. It was to obedience and sprinkling. So if I don't get there, all these things I'm supposed to be getting at. I'm supposed to be getting at praise of God, joy in God, love for God. What are those other words? Praise, glory, and honor. I am supposed to be getting to those conclusions. And then he warns us, verse 17, And if you invoke as Father... Him who judges each one impartially, according to his deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Uh, 
realize that it's not just, oh, a coach at halftime talking a team up about what a great team we are. What, you know, it really doesn't matter if you win or lose. It's how you play the game. And, and Christians are supposed to be that kind of team. You know, probably going to lose. Probably going to get killed. You know, um, uh, we, we are... Um, um, also need to be reminded what failure failure of the task involves. We've got fear on the other side. We have the reward of pleasing God on one side, the pleasure of God resting on you, and if you bury your talent in the ground, there's a parable for that too. Cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth where your, the genuineness of your faith was found out. <coughs> so you're motivated by fear. You're motivated by greatness. You're motivated by the good that has come to you. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now notice that the things that we choose to believe in instead of the blood of Christ, when we're tested by success, we choose to believe that we can be saved by money. Perishable things. You were not ransomed by money. You cannot offer it. What shall a man offer for his soul? His firstborn? Rivers of oil and blood? No, can't do anything. Nothing you can do. But the precious blood of Christ, not the perishable things of silver, but like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of times for your sake. Now remember, the Spirit of Christ was telling the prophets this story way back, before the Christ appeared and did the deed. He was made manifest at the end of times. This uh, reminds us that we're not our own. There was a, which says, you are not your own, you are bought with the price. And this is the price. This is what the, 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 the message of the gospel, um, has in it. You do not have, since it is not merely whether or not I'm trying to get this across in, in, a, in a coherent way. Christianity is the combination of the work of God in you and your very small offering of your faith. The genuineness of your faith will have this huge response from God. You're not, it's one of those ungenuine things to think that you can walk into Christianity and walk out. You can walk into Christianity and, no, oh, it's not working out for me, and turn around. As if. 100% of you belonging to Christianity was on you. But this, this, we're, we're not, part of the genuineness is huge powers are, are, are leveraged into action in your life. For our sake, verse 21, through him you have confidence in God. Through him you have confidence in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, you have the faith, you have the hope, but that's a sliver of the active power. It's probably no power at all. It was power of you over your mind. That was it. Something you probably learned how to do when you were one and a half. Have some power over your mind. And now you're deciding whether or not this is true, and we're trying to find out in life how genuine it is, because that faith and hope are in God. That's where the power kicks in. That's where the glory kicks in, the praise, the love. That's why we love, that's why we rejoice, that's why we praise. Everything he did, not what we did. We change who we are. He changed, he was manifest the last time because he changed who he was. So he's expecting that we will change who we are. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere love of the brethren, love one another earnestly from the heart. 
sincere love. There is a pure, but going back to the beginning of the sentence, there's a purification of you. That's what it's not just. Oh golly, did my you know the litmus test of my faith? You know, we're all concerned. Did I believe well enough? Strong enough? I, I prayed for Aunt Margaret to be healed of her quadriplegia, and I don't know if my my faith is strong enough. I wish I had a little faith dipstick or something, so I could know if it was enough faith. Yeah, we're testing our faith, but the test isn't that we're trying to get past a place of, uh, you might say, discomfort or unsureness about, we're not just, we lack faith, our faith, and we lack our faith in our faith. But it's a purification of us, having purified our souls, by your obedience to the truth. This has had uh, the genuineness actually finds itself living about something else. It's, you, you don't become about your faith. The testing of your faith has you become about your purification, your obedience, your sincere love. It's one of the, it's where the proof lies. When somebody says, oh, I think I'm a Christian, I just don't really like hanging out with Christians. Sincere love for the brethren. Purified life. Obedience to the truth. These are all results of this, you might say, uh, uh, tested faith that has been uh, genuine or not. You have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And this is where it echoes the parable of the sower again. The seed is being cast. But an imp- a perishable, imperishable seed, you've been born again by this, by, through the living and abiding word of God. Oddly enough, the seed sown in the parable of the sower was the word of God. Okay, but if you go back and read the parable, you say the, the seed is the word of God. You don't have to figure that one out. Who is he talking about? The seed is the word of God. This imperishable seed is the living and abiding word of God. And then he says, all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. It's out of Isaiah 40. Um, I have it on the side here. And then he clarifies that word, which abides forever, is the good news which was preached to you, which is the gospel. The gospel that we started with, the first paragraph, we're back to, And it says, that word that you either, remember that last group, they heard, what does it say? And accepted. And we're testing the acceptance. Because the power of God that is huge in this is working for those who heard and accepted rightly. Those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, born again. That's the nature of being born again. So when, you, when you're looking at life, this is the instruction is verse 13, therefore gird up your mind, be sober. What are you about in that? You're about taking stock of your circumstance. Do I take every you know, insult, offenses, or things not working out for me as reason to question God. I was on the phone with a guy doing some counseling the other day. Just, just one long string of, of things not working out for him, and he was one long string of doubt. Well, there you go. Other people, they just, they, everything goes right for them. This guy had everything go wrong with him. He was a born loser. Others have everything go right for them, and they also, the delight in riches, the gain of other things, keeps them from being fruitful. The word of God isn't something that they are being made more aware all the time of where they have placed their hope. Because it says, you know, that's what you do. You gird up your minds, be sober, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you. This is what you're testing. This is what you're checking. Is my Christianity something that is a uh, is a farming, plowing the field in my life, making sure I'm the kind of dirt that received 
the Word of God in a way that honors what God's narrative of all history has been about? Or am I still kind of set aside for the pleasures of this world? So are you teaching asceticism? No. I'm thinking that those things are either the point and direction of my faith um, or they are uh, the uh, uh, the background, the reward, the gain. If what does he say that it, um, people who renounce all that they have, anybody who has given up this, that, and the other thing, will gain as much in this world and in the life to come. We're not being denied those things, but it's whether or not they hold the role of faith in my life. Is my faith in them? Or have I girded up my mind to study my own faith? Study how I respond to success. Study how I respond to suffering. Take a look at it. Don't be conformed to your passions of your former ignorance. Passions that say, ow, that hurts. God can't be real. Oh, that sure feels good. God can't be real. We're setting ourselves away to other faiths. Serving ourselves, primarily. Well, <clears throat> that is about an hour on the mark. I think you should be duly impressed. Um, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Thank you. Greet St. Peter for us. We are very grateful that he wrote this down. and It's a blessing. There's so many good things that we didn't even get to look at closely, but uh, many good things. Thank you. In your son's name, amen. Mm-hmm.